Okay, everyone. Uh, so welcome to our uh, third session of the weekly beer, uh, general intellect, brain of the firm reading group. Um, and this time we are covering uh, chapter three, the dimensions of the problem. Uh, so in uh, the introduction, or the summary, uh, Beer says, uh, in chapter three, we start to use the tools. Here, the really fundamental problem of management is discussed and analyzed. It is the problem of complexity, how to measure it, how to manipulate it. We think of our problems as concerned with such things as men, materials, machinery, and money, and their interaction. It is just that interaction that causes the difficulties, and we must get at its nature. We must also get at the nature of the way huge numbers of states in a system soak uh, each other up, which is the subject of Ashby's law. It turns out that organization exists precisely to implement that cybernetic law. Uh, by the end of chapter three, the fundamental reason should be clear why things cannot be organized down to the last iota and why in human terms we should not even want to try. Of course, we all know that they cannot be so organized, that indeed an awful lot of things just organize themselves. But when we know exactly why, we can approach the problem of how. All right, so the dimensions of the problem, the problem being the problem of complexity. Um, so, uh, anyone have some general thoughts about chapter three to, to mention? I think, uh, one of the things that chapter three is trying to do is beer had previously written a book called decision and control. And so he's trying to condense the ideas from decision and control into the beginning of brain of the firm. When he uses the terms decision and control, in this chapter, he's using them in the specific context of what they mean in the previous book. All right. Uh, can you just, uh, oh, sorry, somebody isn't using headphones. I'm getting feedback. Um, let me, I'm not, so let me switch to headphones. Okay, thanks. Uh, so while we're waiting, uh, anyone else have some comments about uh, chapter three? I was just going to yeah, say, quickly, um, oh. oh, yeah, go for it. Okay, go ahead, Reed. I forgot to raise my hand. Bad. Yeah, I think this chapter really, really very well lays out the problem of control, right? That there's no way you can build a machine that can account for everything unless you reduce variety somehow. And I think that's what I got from this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. When it gets to like the um, uh, quantum discussion uh, and the processing capacity of matter. Um, that really lays it out quite clearly. Uh, Shane, you were going to say something? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a it's similar sort of remarks, um, but uh, <clears throat> I found that this, this chapter was uh, quite a bit kind of easier than the previous ones. Like it's, it's getting really into a, a particular single topic. Um, and the thing that stands out, yeah, is that like we're, getting to the, the like Ashby's law thing of like the, um, the, the varieties or the dimensions of the complexity have to balance out in both like, so that everything needs to be sufficient to the task, uh, whatever the task happens to be. So for a given input uh, process, 
the single foot arrangement. It all kind of needs to work out. So you need enough variety in the sensors to discriminate the um, the complexity that you care about. You need enough variety in the processor to process the input. And then you need enough variety in the output to be able to affect anything. And it's Ashby's law is kind in retrospect, it feels almost trivial, and yet it's kind of mind-blowing, you know? And it's also mind-blowing that this is not really something that's well understood generally. I think that's a point that Beer, I don't think he raised it in this book. I think it's more in Heart of the Enterprise, where he, he says that, like, Ashby's law is like, um, it's like laws of motion or like the, um, the you know, some of, some of the early scientific things that, like, or like, say, Newton's stuff, where it took a couple of decades or whatever generation in, before that was really grasped, like pe people kind of like when Newton was like, "Oh yeah, this, that's, this is how this shit works," they're like, "Huh, yeah, I guess so." But it took a while for it to really sink. It's not until you get to like the, you know Einstein and those kind of guys that you really get to the consequences of Newtonian motion. Beer believes the same thing is going on with Ashby. That like Ashby says this stuff and is like, "Huh, yeah, yeah that smells right," you know. But that we're still in the process of really working it. Well, you know, we're not really in the process of working out what the actual con consequences law really are um so yeah it's it's good stuff um, uh matt you had something to say yeah in, in terms of a uh a, a, a broad strokes so my, my my favorite bit was when when he goes so far as to even say you know like there there's like a fundamental like upper limit on you know like how accurate our measurement is is going to be and so like i and i like that he connects that to you know kind of a whole philosophy of science i'm actually writing a thing for um a cosmonaut on a um on Phil, on Philip's eye, um, uh, in terms of like um, instrumentalism, basically, you know, like you're not trying to find real reality. You'll never find real reality. Like, you know, for for a lot of reasons, you can never really, you know, make a perfect model of reality. And uh, uh, and so, you know, like just try to create models. You know, like the map is not the territory. All models are wrong, but some are useful. And uh, you know, like yeah, yeah, you know, uh, between like incompleteness and uh, uh, the fact, and you know, you know, um, uh, this quantum thing. You know, like that, that says that, you know, like uh, uh, you're always just going to have some, you know, um, amount of jitter or even, you know, can even say conservation of energy because, you know, any measurement, you know, is, you know, is ultimately a transfer of energy and no transfer of energy is going to be 100 uh, percent efficient. You know, like models, you know, just have a whole bunch of models that are mutually contradictory, you know, try to coalesce them. But, you know, like you're never going to be right. So, you know, just try to make purpose built uh, uh, models. Right. Um, and I think that kind of gets back to. Uh, what I was saying previously in another discussion about the um, the sort of uh, lack or or gap in understanding um, that we usually attribute to the the sort of uh, numinal character of the thing in itself um, when we look at it in terms of the pers the the, the uh, upward limit on precision of measurement. Uh, we can see that this uh, limit on understanding is actually a feature of reality. Uh, it's something that exists in the, the physical world. It's not just a kind of a subjective problem. Um, it is, a, in fact, something that's just like real. Um, mm -hmm. And like everything, everything is a noumenal thing related to something else, right? Like this, this is just a feature of systems in general, right? Like... Um, so it, it, yeah, you're right. It's not peculiar to human perception. It's just a thing about information transfer and thermodynamics in general. So like yes. it's it's all it's all numina all across the the web, right? So the whole thing, right? Is, uh, I mean, yeah, has this character groups. Yeah, to the extent that it's like 
what does Numina even mean when you think about it in a multi-perspectival sense? Because yeah, sure. it's, it's um, actually a feature of reality. Uh, it's not something yeah. beyond. It's not something, uh, yeah, beyond us. Uh, it's just what we are. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Uh, so let's let's get into it a little bit more then. Um so we begin uh, with our discussion here of the anastomotic reticulum. Uh, it is it is back. Um, so I think here um, we are talking about the sort of uh, parity of inputs and outputs to begin with, right? Um, that uh, to get, like, ideally, you want these things to match up. Um, so, you know, this is... Again, something that's pretty familiar. Um, like, I'm trying to think of a good example here uh, beyond the sort of typewriter example that viewers using. Um, I think, you know, if you have a low quality signal and you put it through a really high fidelity sound system, you might actually end up with more noticeable noise in the end because there's not that parity between input and output. Does that make sense as a example? Uh, I think uh, Shane is, uh, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I think that does make sense as an example. I just wanted to point out that in, in Ashby's introduction to cybernetics, when he gets to um, explaining variety, he explains it in, term of, in terms of a game where two agents are, are playing a game on a board. And if both of the, if, if so, if agent B has enough output variety, like it, if it is a, able to actions to counteract every one of agent A's moves, then it'll it'll be able to play the game fairly or, you know, come to some sort of balance or whatever. It's a very contrived example. But if B is, if system B is constrained in some way, like it has one hand tied behind its back, it will be out of balance. And it, it's, it's output variety. Like it will be not able to make the full range of moves. It'll have, have some constraint on it and it will invariably lose the game because System A will simply outperform it at, uh, at, at its, its, its move repertoire. Now, you could think of the same way for like flipping it around for input sort of things that if system B was not able to discern the state of the board, or if there was some stochastic element to its sensing of the board, it would invariably lose to the, the more sensitive um, system. It, it's, uh, it's interesting that Ashby puts it in kind of game theoretic terms. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a practical thing that comes up a lot uh, in games. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the fa famous example is uh, first-person shooters, uh, people on PC, they limit them from playing with people on console because they can use mice, and mice have higher variety uh, than a console controller, uh, so it gives them an unfair advantage and unbalances the game. Um, another one you could think of is, like, the way in which um, in uh, RTS games... Uh, the computer has view of the full map, whereas you don't. Um, and that can feel unfair because it's making moves with perfect knowledge of the map and you don't have it. So it's it's trying to unbalance uh, things that way. Mm -hmm, certainly. Um, okay. Uh, so I think that kind of makes sense. Um, Rudy, please go ahead. Yeah, right now I'm kind of thinking of the different approaches. Now we talk about game theory, how Deep Blue was very differently coded from whatever deep learning machine beat the champion Go player because the amount of variety in Go is much bigger than the amount of variety in chess. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be adequate to the game. Um, uh, 
And yeah, I guess the game there would be considered the anastomotic reticulum uh, that these two players are interacting through. Um, okay. Uh, so uh, we talk about uh, the, okay, so to get to the um, anastomotic reticulum, um, it says uh, the, on page 40, final paragraph, uh, the third part of the control system is the anastomotic reticulum, which connects the sensory to the motor plate. And there will be much discussion later of this component. For the moment, we will try to assess the scale of the problem that faces the control system for any complex organism, such as a human being or a firm, in terms of input and output. And now that these two terms are again mentioned in the same breath, let us note one more interesting fact. We spoke of the capacity of the parts of the control system to distinguish detail. On the input side, this capacity needs to be equivalent for the set of receptors and the sensory plate. On the output side, it should be the same for the motor plate and the effectors of action. So again, uh, that's the thing we haven't quite talked about is that um, there is the, uh, on the input uh, side, it's uh, the receptors and the sensory plate. Those both figure into uh, the calculation, it's not just uh, the receptors. Um, and then on the output, it is the motor plate and effectors of action. Uh, so those are both factors. Uh, putting the whole control system together then, we can see that this capacity needs to be the same for both input and output considered as a whole. So what I just said. Uh, the reasoning is exactly the same as before, and we are still assuming that the criterion is an efficient system. The common case in which, for example, the transmission channels by their nature degrade the information they pass will be different. Here we shall need a greater amount of input data than can actually be used, and the surplus can be employed to offset degradation in the channel. Um, trying to find the part where he's talking about the additional complication brought about by the anastomotic reticulum. Uh, does anyone remember where that is? I think it might be getting on another page or two. Um, yeah, I think so. It's close to the, so he goes through the example of, um, you know, just dis discriminating the letters of the alphabet. And it's like, right. Know, it, it's all fairly straightforward to us. I think it probably doesn't need to be gone over. Um, I, 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 think it's I actually, yeah. I actually had a question about that, that example. Um, uh -huh. So, uh, you know, he presents it as a binary system. But mm -hmm. it, he talks also about uh, comparing degrees of brightness to do the sort. And it seems yeah. to me like that wasn't actually like digital. It was like more like an analog kind of thing. Um, yeah. So um, I think I, I think he kind of smuggles in an assumption somewhere uh, that he doesn't fully explain. But he, he assumes that the old, old six letters could be distinguished by their level of brightness rather than their shape. Yes. Instance, just to keep the example simple. Um, this is a kind of thing that Ashby goes over a lot of um, that, like, the the signal itself is analog like the the reality of the situation is certainly analog but we only have the ability to discriminate so many steps so um i yeah. think it's maybe somewhere else probably in something we've covered for the show there was the example of like uh the the dimmer bulb um the the, yep. the analog like brightness of a bulb and um and so it's 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 applying a digital binary partition sort of thing to to something that is ultimately um analog Right. So it's basically rounding it into a zero or one according yeah. to a certain threshold. Um, all yeah. right. Uh, I I believe, uh, Matt, you wanted to speak. 
Hey, um, uh, the, 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 uh, I was going to say that though, yeah, because it, it was um um I um yeah, and and uh, it, it, it took me a sec for that too, but it's a, a yeah, it's it's an analog input, but it's a digital output. It's a, you know, it's a it's a binary classifier. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Okay. Great. Um, yeah, that just seemed a little bit uh, ambiguous in the example there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it goes through that whole example. Um, there's the whole uh, issue of televisions. Um, so talking about, uh, I think, uh, yeah, so he says, um, we may start on the same problem of variety reduction from the other end. There are hundreds of lines in a television scanning system and hundreds of quanta of black or white dots transmitted to each line. There are thus, in effect, tens of thousands of binary receptors in use to generate a picture on a TV screen. Similarly, there are roughly a million binary receptors in the retina of each eye. No wonder then that either the camera or the eye uh, can distinguish between 26 letters of the alphabet, for we have seen that the job could be uh, done with only five receptors. So here is another key point. By using far more receptors than are theoretically necessary, we can in fact accommodate an enormous amount of confusion in the input. This point is analogous to the one about having two messengers carrying one message, although this time we are dealing with receptors rather than channels. Thus, people go on watching television pictures fairly happily and certainly with understanding when the picture is broken up quite seriously by electrical disturbance. Similarly, the eye will successfully read excruciatingly bad handwriting. This is because it has sufficient receptors to distinguish between millions of letters rather than just 26. And if we take all possible alphabets, including handwritten ones into account, we may well need most of them. Um, so uh, yes, you can use uh, very powerful uh, receptor to deal with very noisy data, I guess is the, the point that's being said here, right? Mm -hmm. yep. I think uh, SWR has their hand up. It really has okay. to distinguish in, this, in this UI, actually. Um, All right. Uh, uh, SWR, do you want to go for it? Yeah, actually, it was a question uh, about analog and digital. I'm thinking it might make sense to ask it later, though. So carry on with this discussion. Okay. And Shane, uh, did you have something to say here? Yep. Um, so yeah, the, the, the notion of sensory overkill is very, um, very interesting here because he's, he's gone through the binary classifier thing and has actually kind of showed us that like if we have a, a string of bits, we in many cases, we don't actually need that many of them. Like there's a, there's a wonderful compression going on there. Like you can get pretty far with the bits, right? Like, or like 64 bits is enough to encode anything, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so if you have sensory overkill, you can accommodate a lot of noise in the, in the, in the signal and still get somewhere. It's also interesting that this is an argument for the benefit of hypersensitivity. Um, this is kind of like what Ashby was talking about with the, the difference between a brain and a shell, that like both of them are trying to defend the organism from threats, but a brain is hypersensitive in a way that a, a, a shell isn't. And so a brain is able to actively defend the organism in a way that the shell can't. There's a kind of a, a change in kind that comes along with the quantity of, of sensitivity. Um, which I think is, is very, very interesting, right? At a, at a kind of political level or a social level, we, we could argue for, you know, societies that are more like the culture rather than like, um, you know, territorial state-like kind of societies, which are were more shell-like, right? That like there is a benefit to the ultra-sensitivity and uh, sheer variety of, uh, of capacities 
of a, a hypersensitive system. Uh, yeah, that that this stuff is all really reminding me of uh, 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 John Boyd's uh, theories of uh, strategy um, and just sort of like that that hypersensitivity giving you a a huge advantage um, in action. Um, Certainly. Uh, Steve, uh, please go ahead. Um, just a, a couple of things. So one thing, like I, I couldn't help but think throughout most of this, like I don't know how many of you remember, like throughout the '90s and early 2000s. So I listened to a lot of like music from you know older music from the 20s through like the 70s, and like the constant like remastering of CDs that they kept pushing out. It's like you know get the 8-bit, the 16-bit, the the 32-bit, like remastered, and it was just constantly like chasing this target and draining our you know wallets. Um, but I mean, that, that was like what I would kept thinking in the back of my head. And like the, one of the problems, of course, is like as you get higher fidelity uh, remastering of these early 20s or 30s recordings, like there's a lot of noise in that stuff. And so you're absolutely running the risk of like amplifying that noise. And it actually makes it a more unpleasant experience and actually listening mm -hmm. to some of this, um, which is funny. Because yeah, and like some, some of those early... Um some of those early recordings aren't actually even that good and like yeah. you're kind of better off with a 16-bit like 80s remaster rather than like the pristine kind of one because you could kind of hide some of the some of the ugly details behind a little bit of the attenuation in the in the in the middle ground right the 16 bits sort of era. yeah and like you're seeing it even now like, you get the, the ultra high def one yeah this this sort of backlash right of like all these diy recordings that are being released on cassette you know and it's like it's a way to just sort of punt on this whole problem because you know now that we're stuck in a purely digital age um you know where so much of how we listen to this stuff is limited anyway um unless you really splurge on the really expensive ways of dealing with like getting back to high quality audio um but yeah no that was like that those were the echoes that i was seeing when i was looking at like oh you just need to keep increasing the number of bits in order to be able to like get more fidelity out of your out of the real analog signals and well sometimes <laughs> Uh, Matt, please go ahead. Yeah, and, and 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 then it goes into the active processing that that, that he talks about too, right? Because uh, um, yeah, like uh, um, uh, th there was a controversy that came out with like like Disney like re-released like some old stuff, and uh, um, you know, like they, they you know they they, they realized they, they had a choice to make. You know, they 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 either uh, display this thing that was never meant to be in HD, where you know you can see like hair is on the cell and stuff or you know like they can change it a little bit and then uh you know like that, that becomes like that, that's a non-trivial decision and you know like uh even if you use like something like a you know these weird like super resolution al algorithms that they're coming out with now they really are mimicking what your brain is doing all the time it's, it's kind of it's kind of wild like uh you know the, the, yeah. like, it's a very weird territory yeah absolutely um uh third creed go ahead I was just going to say that maybe in that kind of thing, they're missing what the real signal was in the first place in any case. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not necessarily so sure that everyone wanted to hear the end of the envelope on a particular note or something like that. It wasn't like, you know what I mean? It's it's almost like, and this is probably just a completely, you know, irrelevant point, but I was just thinking, you know, that's not really the, I don't know how to talk about signal in the terms of, like a cultural product like music, but it's not necessarily a, an, a, a, an audio product. Like part of the product is the, the time when it was made. So, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's, a, that's yeah. an extremely relevant point, right? Because it's like you've got to, um, like a, a lot of this kind of technical stuff that beer is going through here does present 
assume there's a signal and you've identified it or whatever. He's, he's keeping it simple for the sake of exposition, right? But um, it's possible to misidentify a signal, right? Like it's absolutely possible to do that. It's possible to optimize for the wrong thing entirely. I mean, we're familiar with that in capitalism, right? Like it, um, yep. it regulates a signal that none of us actually care about and it refuses to regulate signals they do care about. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's completely possible to just get, a, get it absolutely wrong at the like conceptual level, not even the sensory level, but just like the concept of what the sense even is can just be wrong. Uh, Jeremy, please go ahead. So yeah, I just found today an interview that Stafford did in 2001, and he's talking about neoliberal capitalism. And he says, you know, the neoliberals have the wrong, he doesn't use the term neoliberal, but he's basically describing finance capitalism. And he says, they've got all the controls wrong. They have this idiotic notion that if you just flip the knob back and forth on the interest rates, you control the entire society and it's stupid. Uh, and so that's kind of getting to, it's just not a sufficiently uh, high variety uh, control system. Yes, and it's the wrong knob. Like the interest rate doesn't care about workers. It doesn't care about the values of society. It doesn't take eudemony into account. It's just going to make the richest people in society richer or poorer, depending on how you turn the knob. And so he's like, that's just setting up a, a control system that completely ignores what we actually care about in society. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that is one of the things about um, the post-73 <clears throat> austerity um, that was the most brutal uh, was just, you know, basically the erasure of all those um, dimensions of society and experience um, as politically significant and the assertion of monetarism um, as like a, just a like central bank independence, interest rate controls. Um, that's the bedrock of society from now on. And we all need to get in line behind it. Um, uh, just getting to the signal uh, issue we were talking about again, a little bit. Um, I've been dealing with a lot of issues with, um, 240p and 480i upscaling this week so this is really relatable in terms of like yeah you could you know you could use a way more sensitive receptor for a signal like that but you end up with all kinds of artifacts that show up in the picture um so yeah it's it's really interesting uh you can still of course discern what's going on it's just you're ending up with artifacts that weren't there in the original. So that kind of speaks to that desire to have parity between the input and output. Um, okay. Uh, so um, let's see then. Uh, we get to the element of decision. Uh, the distinction between yes and no between zero and one is the element of decision. Uh, managers may evade responsibility by giving equivocal or bogus decisions if they wish, or by making qualified utterances. But when the crunch comes, the answer is binary. And in fact, managers do use the process of dichotomous classification through rather in though rather informally. A managerial problem may have hundreds of possible solutions 
and the manager may refuse to do more than say he thinks the answer will be towards one end of a scale rather than the other. This sounds extremely vague, but in fact, he's dividing the possibilities into two groups, which may not be of equal size, and thus leaving the threshold between the two groups muzzy. His people will go along with this for some time, performing actions which tend to push the situation in that one direction rather than the other, and trying to avoid the doubtful zone. But sooner or later, they reach a point where they cannot decide what to do, and the manager is presented with a narrowed-down uncertainty. And so the process goes on, effectively splitting the universe of possibilities into two parts, until one day the manager is faced with saying yes or no to some final proposition. It can be shown mathematically that the most effective way of going through a sequential set of decisions of this kind is to divide the possibilities exactly in half each time, but it does not matter much if the decision is not, in fact, equal. One may have to use an extra receptor, which entails taking an extra decision beyond the number which is strictly necessary, but the general procedure holds. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Um, yeah, so this, uh, as a programmer uh, person, this is all kind of fairly straightforward binary stuff, bit strings, they're great. Um, I just wanted to throw it out there. Is anyone, did anyone struggle with this example? Like, is it's, it's not, it is not super intuitive if you're not a computer person, just, just putting it out there. Does anyone need a further explanation of what's going on here? No, all good, binary search. Fantastic. All right. Um, good stuff. Uh, so he's talking about uh, rate. Um, then, so um, it turns out, so this is on 45. Uh, it turns out then that the elemental decision between yes and no, zero and one, is the raw material of control theory. It is called a binary digit and contracted to bit. Um, so, okay, talking about bits. Um, okay, so the next, this next part so here. I think it starts he, to get interesting at the bottom, right? Yeah. Like, it's the very bottom of the page where nature takes its revenge, right? Right, uh, so there's the law of requisite variety. The answer is that we may devise variety generators and control mechanisms, just as nature disposes variety proliferators in proposing problems of control. So far, so good, but now nature takes its revenge. If we, the controllers, can generate very large numbers from a small number of components, so can nature. That is what variety proliferation means. Consider this. We said that we needed five receptors to read the 26 letters of the alphabet. Imagine then five light bulbs, which can be lit up any number of ways. Um, the fact that these five receptors will distinguish between 32 letters means that these five bulbs can generate 32 different patterns. And of course, if we want to know what our environment is all about, we have to recognize the patterns it displays. So if the outside world consisted solely of 40 light bulbs, we know from our previous argument that we could be presented with a million, million different patterns. True, it will take us only 40 bits of informational effort to distinguish between them. The situation is quite symmetrical, but the world does not consist of 40 light bulbs, but of milliards of things and events. Uh, any comments on that? No, okay, pretty straightforward. Um, so uh, we then get into this discussion about figure nine. Um, and I think the point that was the most interesting to me here was uh, the variety of the anastomotic reticulum. Uh, does anyone have anything to say about that? Okay, let's talk about it a little bit more. Um, so we have, oh, 
someone oh shane uh go ahead uh yeah so uh, for me it it only sunk in at this point that um the anastomatic reticulum it need it, it it's not just that it needs to um accommodate the variety of the input and process it it needs enough variety to map every possible in input onto every possible output, which is, that's where it gets truly explosive. Like it's in that middle part in the anastomotic reticulum because you're looking at like, oh, a, a situation of N bits or whatever, and then oh, two to the N states, whatever that kind of shit. And then it's like, oh, but you have two to the N to two to the N is the the, the, the complexity of the interior part. Um, yeah, that, that's where the, the thing really spirals out of control. It's like, it's, it's not just like, because we can think of that thing of like going from an input to an output as a simple pipe. And you might, you might be mm -hmm. left to think, well, the pipe just needs to be as wide as the input and that's fine. But it's, it, it, it needs to be able to go from a world of patterns on the input to a world of patterns on the output. And that's a, that's a, like a dimensional multiplication thing. Um, it, yes. it gets pretty obscene pretty fast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just getting back to our sort of uh, <clears throat> excuse me our chess or go example, I suppose that the um, the game state or the board is able to accommodate an enormous amount of variety because it is a um, a grid of possible uh, variables that is operating in time. Like the complexity is sort of moderated by the fact that the the game state can change. Uh, is am I kind of getting at the right idea here? Because obviously chess I, and Go are very complex games, but the game boards themselves are very simple. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's something very interesting in that that like there's there's levels of dealing with variety, right? Like if you're an absolute novice to chess, you have to first deal with the variety of the pieces. You have to memorize what each of them does. Then you have the variety, of, there's this many squares on the board, fine. And then you're into, oh, now we have the variety of all possible combinations of pieces and slots on the board. But then it steps up one level again into the variety of all possible transitions from every state to every other, to all adjacent states. And that's the kind of like the ultra high level of the game meta meta game stuff that like gene, chess geniuses end up playing is they're, they're, they're not really tracing the individual moves of the pieces that that's well that that's happening but it's kind of a, a sideshow they're tracing trajectories through an abstract space of like yeah. i how do i transition from one board to another and what's the variety of possible states that are three moves into the future it turns out that's gigantic like truly gargantuan um and so it, it's a navigational problem in many 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 dimensions including this like time dimension of like the sequence of variety changes um, right. It's, and it's so maddening stuff at that level. In a sense, like the, the board is kind of like a subsystem here. And the real anastomotic reticulum is like the um, all of the communication between the two players, uh, because the mm -hmm. so much of what's going on in the game is not actually represented on the board. It, it's all in the mind yeah. games and stuff. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Matt, please go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, um, I, um, it, it, it actually took, took, took me a sec for, for this one because uh, I think I think the typewriter is just not a great like example like like for this just because like like it is it is like a one to one mapping well like uh, uh, um, as opposed to like a uh, you know um, versus like 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 the chess versus go thing where you know um, uh, you can kind of see why 
um, uh, um, Go has such a bigger combinatorial explosion that like you can't um, brute force it because like for chess, like there's all there, there's a, there's actually a pretty small number of legal moves that you have um, uh, for any given board state, and also there there are fewer board states, and so you know j j just just like uh yeah everything's a lot more limited versus Go where you know like uh, uh you know you, you have you have as many you know you have many you have as many legal moves as there are you know like free squares on the board, and so like that's always you know just going to be like so much bigger. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's the flexibility, but like yeah, that that, make, that makes it the explosion. Yeah, where, where uh, 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 you know it's it's because like you know for 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 any you know for any given state, you know like uh, times all the possible transition states. Yeah, right. Of course. Um, okay. Uh, so um, so now we get into the impossibility. I've yes. had my hand raised for a bit, oh, and I don't sorry. think Sorry, it's, it's hard for me to track because of uh, the how small the uh, hand signals are. So, uh, yeah, please, yeah. please uh, go ahead. So I want to kind of say something Matt was saying, but in a way, like, it's not only about, you know, say you have the example of two light bulbs. You have two light bulbs, you have four states, you have four other light bulbs, you have four states, so you need four times four. But then, you know, like Matt was alluding to the amount of moves you can do. It's not just about the amount of moves, but how many moves are legal. Because say, if you cannot turn off both bulbs at the same time, that reduces the variety of the problem. And while I feel like in Go, you have way more moves you can make co compared to chess. And that's where I think the reduction is happening, not so much in the fact that the chess board is smaller. And yeah, so somehow you need, somehow this thing needs to encode history and that helps us a bit reduce the scope of the problem. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, the game board state can change so much and go based on uh, the, the sort of flexibility of the rules, um, what legal moves you can make. Uh, uh, third creed, and then I'll go to Shane. Um, I was just going to ask if I understand that the anastomic and that the reticulum is just a very complex, complex enough to be usually incomprehensible uh, between an input and an output, some kind of incomprehensible mapping. Do I understand enough? Is there more to know than that? Or is that, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think that is the, basically the, the outcome that we get to, right? Uh, because, you know, we, we see next that we have the 300 uh employee example which is far more than the two in two out example that we saw previously um and it just becomes enormous um and so the the question is going to be how to address that enormity uh all right so uh go to shane and then steve yeah i'll just um bring this in quickly just something that rudy said that reminded me of this that um it's probably worth clarifying that um we're always talking here about discernible variety um, so this, this is a point that Ashby leans on a bit more than Beer does, because I think Beer's just trying to get through a bit more material a bit, a bit quick. But Ashby uses this example of like, because the, the, the lights, right? But discerning the variety of, um, you're, you're watching a house, and the house has four windows. It's a square, you know, like two on the top, two on the bottom, two on the top floor, right? Um, and the people in the house will light up the lights with a, a, for a signal to you, basically. It's like a Paul Revere sort of thing. How many states can you actually distinguish? And you might think, oh, you know, two to the four or whatever. But... Crucially, if you see two lights, if you see two lights that are laid out horizontally, left and right, you can't tell at a distance in the dark whether it's the top floor or the bottom floor that's lit. 
and the same goes for the vertical thing. So your actual like there is a variety to the real situation, um, and then there's the variety that you can discern in a situation. Now, if it was daylight, you might be able to distinguish that it's it's the top floor, two lights that are lit, and so you would have more variety to make the decision there. But the the, the ability to dis, to distinguish things and to make decisions on them is always contextual and is uh, often constrained by things that aren't really the fault of your senses in, in a way. Like it's, it's circumstantial attenuation of variety, which, which means that you, like this, the code could simply be scrambled for you. Like, oh shit, is, is, it, is it top floor or bottom floor that they've got lit? I can't because it's too dark. I don't know what floor it is at this distance, you know? Yeah, like conversely, like an owl would probably be able to discern that. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, Steve, go ahead. Then we'll go to SWR. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure that this is in many ways what the rest of the book is about, right? But like the, the notion of trying to figure out the different avenues for reducing the complexity um, just abounds, right? And you you see it from even just going from the continuous space to the discrete space in terms of your end receptors, like that's a decision you're making right away to constrain um, you know, to, to constrain and limit the problem. And then, you know, and if you look at like decision theory and AI and things like that, like the fields are ripe with, uh, with areas where you make certain assumptions about how the world works that can start reducing this complexity. You know, we talked about things like the trajectories through time and how that massively increases the, the complexity, right? If you looking at things like, you know, a good example from like reinforcement learning is, um, you know, Markov uh, properties, right? That you assume that how you are right now doesn't have anything to do or it's irrelevant how you got there, right? So you don't have to worry about your history. You can only worry about everything you see right now. Um, and then, of course, like even that is not enough. So you have to start doing things like talking about probabilities and statistics and saying, you know, let me reduce the, I don't have to know everything completely precisely, but if I get it 90% correct, then that's probably okay. And you can massively reduce. Um, you know, the two to the n to the two to the n variety that you get there. Um, unfortunately, you know, when you start looking at things like that, it's like there's consequences because even if you get it 90% correct, you know, there's 10%, the 10% of people that, you know, don't get healthcare or whatever, um, like there's real suffering there. And so like this constant battle that you're getting. And I mean, the problem that I've always had with it is that while there are certainly like, you know, foundational and theoretical tools and assumptions you can make, so much of it ends up being so particular to the specific domain and task that you're working with that it's always very hard to extrapolate in any sort of general sense um, that is that is meaningful and like it becomes so much more of an art than a science when you're actually trying to implement this stuff. Um, you know, I work in, in robotics, and one of the things that we constantly are dealing with is the fact that like like specifically, I work with like humanoid robotics, and they're expensive and hard to come by, so we have to rely on simulations. But simulations are making real decisions about what the world is actually like that are nowhere near accurate or reliable. Um, so you end up designing your anatomic reticulum to deal with a world that doesn't actually exist. And then when you try to take your software and then go put it on a real robot, then you pretty much have to start over from scratch, like more often than not. Um, so it's like you, you make all these assumptions to try to simplify just to make progress, but it just it ends up being so in practice, you know, it's, it ends up being so specific to the, the specific problems that you're dealing with. So, you know, I mean, I'm looking forward to the rest of it because the hope is that 
he starts to get into sort of general principles for dealing with this. But um, but yeah, it's a it's a constant battle, battle right? Yeah, certainly. Um, certainly you can come up with solutions for these problems, but they do tend to be very domain specific and uh, kind of rigid. Um, uh, so we'll go to SWR and then Rudy. Yeah, okay, so what was just being discussed? Wait, can you guys hear me first of all? Okay, great. Um, I guess when I was reading this, uh, when I came to the analog versus digital part, I guess I, I honed in there. I feel like there's something that makes me cautious about that distinction. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering if Beer, and maybe it's too early to tell, but if, if Beer thinks that this is a, these are stable properties, right, of a um, input or output, or um, whether or not we should kind of look at it as, uh, I guess, uh, the relation between us being able to sense something and and the thing we're sensing. Uh, when someone brought up the the kind of the point that you know, depending on conditions, two or three light bulbs might look like one, right? Um, and I guess that that connects to this uh, uncomfortability I have with the, the distinction between the two. And I'm wondering if anyone can kind of comment on that. Uh, so you're speaking to the sort of uh, stability of the inputs and outputs when considering a problem, like that these are actually uh, quite in flux. And so um, the de decision criteria kind of change. Specifically the, the stability of the distinction between an analog and a digital signal. Like I'm wondering, you know, at a, at a certain granularity, um, right. does a analog system or uh, signal turn into a digital signal? Um, I guess that. Yeah, is... I think you're on the right track there. Yeah, yep. um, I think it's. It, it, I know I've been riffing on this for the whole call, but like it's it's kind of a thing that's more explored earlier in Ashby, or like there's. I think Ashby leans on it a bit more, right? That like, yeah, we're we're dealing with uh, ultimately analog phenomena, but we use heuristic, quick and dirty kind of essentially binary partition sort of stuff to try and deal with them. But you are right that like um, traffic lights at a sufficient distance will just look like a blur, right? Like it's there, there is the, 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 the real will take its revenge on you ultimately, right? Like uh, no matter how clever we think we are about our binary schemes. So we do have to bear in mind, right? That all models are wrong unequivocally, but some of them are useful, right? And like using bit strings, like a, a strings of binary distinctions is a very useful way to try to get to grips with something that will pay off if your model ends up in coherence with what the behavior of the real thing actually is. But it does leave open the possibility the behavior of the real thing might change, and you might be you might be left in the dust, right? That your your binary classifier might not work anymore. That's always a, a real risk. Uh, Rudy, please go ahead. Yeah. So just a bit on that topic, I feel like we we're trying to get at you know what is a problem here, and it's not really written, but the problem is basically choosing which of the two to the n, two n of the nystomatic reticula is the better one. And being the better one is defined by many things. And some of the things it could be defined would be with respect to robustness. Like, you know, you're saying like, if I'm far enough, will my system break because it's not measuring accurately the signals? Or what am I optimizing for? Like someone brought up before, well, capitalism solves a problem, but it's optimizing for the Dow Jones index, not for the amount of people without home. So I guess it's like the subtext is there. It's not really written, but it's what they're trying to do. It's trying to solve which of these ways of combining input to output is the best one. 
it's not that the map is two to the n, two to the n complex, it's that you're trying to find out which of the two to the n, two to the n maps is the better one. Right. Um, yeah, that, that really reminds me a lot of like uh, Otto Neurath's work on economics and sort of decision and what the criteria of decision are, all that, that sort of stuff. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, okay. Um, so let's uh, move on then. Um, so we, we get the example of the company uh, with 300 employees. Um, so, you know, the anastomotic reticulum needed to connect this together has the variety of two to the n, two to the n equals two to the 300 to the two to the 300. Um, so enormous, um, I think we can all appreciate that size. Um, so we then get into sort of like the computational capacity of matter in the universe, um, right, is the next uh, thing that comes up. Um, or is it the Earth? We start with the Earth, right? Um, it, yeah. it starts with um, the kind of... Uh... The, the kind of uh, thermodynamic quantum sort of properties of matter. And then right. like, even if you turned all of the earth into a computer, you'd still be nowhere near, uh, or you, you'd be, you'd be at the point of being able to get to grips with this one company, but you would have turned the company into a computer by that point. Like you, you would be a paperclip optimizer, just converting right. the entire verse into computer uh, to barely keep up with yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I found yeah. the, the computational matter thing very bong rip. And I wanted to put on a Hawkwind, Hawkwind record and uh, you know, just kind of chill out with that thought. Uh, <laughs> I, I've definitely seen that example used before, um, like in other uh, other places to talk about uh, computation and the limits to computation. Because um, I, I used to, you know, have those like first year uh, university student conversations with my friend and be like, you can figure it all out. It's you just need a strong enough computer and then you could compute everything, <laughs> and then that's the end of it. And I'd be like, no, you can't do that. And then say, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, third Creed, please go ahead. <laughs> Incredible. I was just going to say uh, this whole thing of, like, using the cognitive capacity of matter itself and other things as a means of describing how to discretize things, like – what what is a thing a thing is the thing we can understand or something like that you even said it someone said it and talking about a saying maybe it was a relation like if you if you have an analog signal and you want to make it discrete you have to have some way of uh some relationship you have with that that thing some kind of ability you have to understand and i i i'm just really attracted to the way this in a little bit in the next chapter too when he starts talking about meta systems and and how that uh and that how like how pervasive that like need to discretize how maybe all understand all understanding or most understanding comes from a some kind of discretization of that kind of thing or, but just like this whole interplay between like uh, complexity and and the way that informs how you discretize things and then how that informs you know how you understand complexity itself I think it's why these conversations get confusing sometimes because it's so like uh, it's so like loopy, you know. It's like self-referential. Yeah, absolutely. There's like the complexity of your understanding versus the thing that's being observed, and and it it, it, it really gets into a loop. Uh, Rudy, go ahead. 
Yeah, I think we, we kind of also alluded to this in the chat this week, that there's a difference between the number of possible states and the number of possible states you actually want to care about that contain information. And in beer, he doesn't distinguish that yet. I mean, I'm talking about the first three chapters. Uh, yeah, very good point. Uh, of course, this uh, principle uh, famously comes up in uh, Cockshot and Cottrell's Towards New Socialism, where they use the... Uh, they, they just discard the states that aren't relevant and thereby make the problem of, of uh, planning tractable. Um, uh, and yeah, um, very important point. Uh, I'm sure it'll come up uh, at some point in this book. Uh, so now, um, so we'll get to the end. Uh, page 50, uh, he says... Um, uh, thus, the anastomotic reticulum is no good by itself. Something must be done to make things work, to get the whole system under control. Proliferating variety must be stopped. The potential must be cut down and down, even though we cannot prove the best way to do it. There is no sensible way even to record and retrieve information on this scale, let alone compute with it. Heinz von Furster has uh, given a graphic example of this memory problem. Uh, so he gives this, this memory problem of like multiplication tables uh, and um, th it has the results of multiplying all numbers up to only 10 digits by all other numbers up to only 10 digits. And the whole book ends up being 10 to the 15 centimeters thick. Um, so obviously very unwieldy uh, and like totally useless for actually getting an answer. Um but, you know, a calculator can do it. Our brains can do it. Um, again, uh, for the non-mathematician, uh, okay, this is just about the size of the numbers. Uh, the bookshelf to accommodate this book will have to extend roughly 100 times the distance between the sun and the earth. A librarian moving with the vo velocity of light, declares von Furster, will uh, require half a day to find a single entry in this book. Uh, the full-scale handling of proliferating variety is completely impossible for the brain of the man or the, for the brain of the firm. Yet both men and firms actually work. They do so. They must do so by chopping down variety on a mammoth scale. It, it takes more than an act of faith in electronic computers to achieve this. The question is, how does a system conveniently and effectively undertake this fearful task? The answer is by organization. So any comments on this sort of final concluding section here? Um, I think uh, there's something interesting there that like, um, you know, things things work, right? But the firms work, they must, they do so and they must do so. And it, I think there's something a bit earlier in one of the chapters where he says uh, something along the lines of like, a thing is, and it is in the sense that it works, but it, it performs, right? In the Pickering sense, because if it's not, then it's not. You know, it's like this. This is your the, the only the only reality of being is in performance and in doing. Um, and yeah, if like you know, it, it, it's kind of thing he'll elaborate much later on that like non-viable systems don't tend to stick around long enough to be observed. Uh, they tend to just die. Um, so yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, right. That that is uh, that is quite interesting. Um, you know, such as uh, of course uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, did not stick a lot around very long at all, considering the resources and size it had. Um, uh, Jeremy, please go ahead. So not to do a spoiler, but further on in the book, 
he's talking about the viable system model with Salvador Allende. And Allende says, well, why isn't anyone else using the viable system model? And Stafford Beer gives him a bunch of cybernetics lessons, shows him the soundness of the science, and says, none of the people in the developed world are looking in this direction. If you organize your system with the proper organization, you could jump ahead of everybody because no one's looking at this. No one's thinking about the science of organization. And uh, I thought that was really compelling. And it, it certainly persuaded Allende that uh, this idea that this is a new way of organizing. There is science behind this. The methods are sound. And if you do this, you're going to be launched into an enterprise that no one else is doing. To me, that's as a socialist, that's tremendously exciting to me, this idea that there could be new methods of organization. I can't think of the word organization without thinking of Lenin, but obviously it goes in other directions as well. This idea that if you apply science to the concept of organization, you can create structures and methods that don't currently exist. And it's not a problem that they don't exist because you're using science to do these things. Uh, Matt, please go ahead. No, yeah, and, and uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, ultimately, like, we need to have like a a, a synthesis of a, a beer and a, a, a Lenin, because you know, uh, um, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, I think it also goes to like um how uh, you know at the end of the day, you know, like no matter how good your system structurally is, you know, like if, if you're not going for the right objectives and you're not encoding them in the KPIs the right way, you know, like it, it's not going to work. You know, like uh, uh, maybe they should have uh, tried to use some of this stuff to, I don't know, like uh, um, uh, um, organize workers' militias and, you know, like loyal elements of the army. But, you know, they, they were just so committed to like not going down that route. But, uh, uh, you know, it, yeah, uh, 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 you know, big fan, obviously, but he should have listened to Castro, should have armed the workers, and should have used the VSM to do it. Uh, sorry, I was also thinking that uh, you could definitely uh, do a synthesis between uh, Beer and Boyd. Because, you know, you're saying you get that strategic advantage over your competitors. Um, it really makes you think of Boyd again. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we need to look into Boyd, uh, definitely. Um, but yeah, the, the, the promise of all this and the kind of the reason for um, for looking into beer is, uh, you know, and the, the reason we're kind of standing for this, like, I don't know, Beerian Marxism or whatever, is that if beer is right, and I have a funny feeling he is, the, the promise here would be to create social systems, social machines that just gigantically outperform everything else. Um, and that, like, for the last couple of decades, we've kind of struggled with this problem of, like, how, how do you outperform capitalism, right? Like, I mean, you, you get that kind of, like, post-68. I think, I think maybe uh, Kyle mentioned the, other, the last time that, like, you know, when, when Deleuze is looking at this kind of thing and theorizing why is it that capitalism is so persistent, he doesn't look at it in these kind of quasi-cybernetic terms. Um, and, like, you know, capitalist realism, all this kind of shit has seemed so just impenetrably huge and like uh, powerful. But I think uh, in the, in recent months, we've seen strong evidence that it's really, really kind of pretty, pretty brittle. Um, and, you know, if, if we intend to overthrow it, we should take the science of organization seriously instead of 
you know, just like trying to resurrect some some dead doctrine from the 1910s or whatever. That like it, it, the promise here is not just out, not just outperforming everything else, but vastly outperforming it. Like outperforming it in a way that like brighter than the stars. It is so much brighter that they all disappear from view uh, when it's there. Right, um, and you know that's <clears throat> sorry. That's kind of always been the um, impetus behind planning in socialism, right, is that there's this promise of unlocking um, an organizational structure or finding an organizational structure that is going to be far more uh, desirable than the local optimum we get from capitalism, right? And, and you know, this is real. I'm thinking here about like all of the socialist economics work that was done like Yugoslavia and Hungary um, in the, the, the 70s and 80s. Uh, they were really interested in this question. Um, and, and unfortunately, they became increasingly dispirited as time went on and started to believe that there was no such solution that would exist. Um, but I think they were also not really looking at the sort of thing that Beer is doing here. Um, they're really working within the paradigm of economics. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. I, sh I should also probably clarify that like, I, I do strongly suspect that Beer is pretty much on the money with a lot of this stuff. But even if he isn't completely there on everything, I think there's more than enough um, material here. There's more than enough uh, new stuff, stuff that is still comparatively new. Like, I mean, it's from four decades ago and yet nobody's really looked at it um there's more than enough stuff to excavate that will pay off even if he's not totally right on every every single aspect so um i'm not expecting silver bullets but i am expecting a uh substantially improved arsenal like substantially improved um even if it yeah. turns out there's no silver bullets in there i mean i think the best we get out of this is like a toolbox that we could use to create solutions. Cause I don't, I like, you know, obviously uh, there was no silver bullet during Pierre's lifetime. If there had been, uh, then uh, he probably <laughs> would have uh, done more with it. Um, uh -huh. But uh, we wouldn't need to have a conversation if there was a silver bullet, right? You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like you gotta, you gotta learn this stuff before you can actually transcend it. Um, uh, Jeremy, please go ahead. So we're going to find that chapter 20, the final chapter of the book, is going to be the most interesting to any sort of revolutionary communist approach. Because he's going to talk about why it was that Chile was able to be shut down and what needs to happen to keep any sort of future social changes from being shut down the way that Cuba, uh, that, that Chile was. And... A lot of it is struggling between optimism and pessimism, but it's, I think it's the most difficult chapter in the book, but it's also a chapter about what do we do about the CIA? What do we do about the most powerful countries in the world just crushing any such enterprise? So I think when we get there, that's going to have the most potential on a political level, the 20th chapter. Great, and uh, we will look forward to reading that. Uh, but for next week, we'll be covering chapter uh, four. Uh, so 
Yes, uh, just one more chapter again. Uh, the Organization of Unthinkable Systems, which is a really great title. <laughs> um, and uh, I look forward to seeing all of you uh, next next week, same time. All right. Yeah, bye. thanks, everyone. It's been good. Thanks, uh, guys. Bye-bye.